Hello and welcome to the Prostate Pod, a conversation about prostate cancer, brought to you by the charity Prostate Cancer Research, dedicated to funding the science needed to beat this mass killer. My name's Ben Munro-Davis. I'm a trustee of the charity. My father died of the disease in 2015. Today we are joined by someone on the very front line of the scientific battle against the disease. Will West is the CEO of the company Cellcentric, a biotech business specialising in particular in the new field of epigenetics. Stay with us. I assure you he does explain everything. And Cellcentric has teamed up with PCR in a project that places the patient at the heart of what they do. More of that later. But first, what exactly is Cellcentric? Cellcentric is a biotech company uh, originally spun out of the University of Cambridge, uh, the Gurdon Institute. Um, We look at the processes by which genes get turned on or turned off within cells. Um, This is called epigenetics, literally epi on top of genetics genes. When that goes well, your cells function perfectly normally, but when it goes wrong, you uh, lose cell-fate control and you get uh, disease, including cancer. Wow. So what's a good form of epigenetics? (laughs) A good form of epigenetics? Um, Everything from controlling uh, your metabolism to uh, traits that get passed on from one generation to another. It's just part of uh, how uh, cells manage themselves, but also actually how certain traits can even be passed from generation to the next. So it's it's kind of additional to the genetic code. And, and is it quite a new field within the study of genes? Yes, it's probably been around for about 30 years. Um, the co-founder of Cellcentric was one of the first people to publish on the phenomenon. Um, so his name is Azim Sarani at, uh, at the University of Cambridge. Um, so yes, it's a relatively new field, uh, but a number of drugs that are related to epigenetics are beginning to come through and uh, it is a sort of a new way of looking at tackling disease. Um, so I presume we think there's some sort of epigenetic cause or to prostate cancer is that is that how you your company is uh, involved in tackling the disease? It's not quite as straightforward as that. I think the studying of epigenetics kind of opened up a whole new area of how cells regulate certain gene pathways. Um, The link to prostate cancer is known to be driven very much by the uh, androgen receptor pathway. And the way that the androgen receptor pathway becomes triggered and then evolves over time, including getting androgen receptor mutations, spice variants, truncated versions, which all kind of continue to fire the prostate cancer tumour. If we step right back, we can look at what is regulating the triggering of the androgen receptor, and we can do that via an epigenetic mechanism. So what our company is doing is blocking two proteins, P300 and CBP, that act as transcription coactivation factors. They're kind of like on switches that turn on the genes that regulate androgen receptor expression, but also all the mutations and variations of the androgen receptor that you get, particularly in late-stage drug-resistant prostate cancer. 
Right, so you, you've got to bear with me. I'm a history graduate here. A lot, a lot for me to um, unpick there, even though it was uh, very clearly expressed. Uh, I, let's start. Androgen receptor. Uh, anybody like me who's uh, I'm, a, I'm an, a layman, but I know it's very important in prostate cancer. What are you talking about? So it's a protein that sits on top of the cell and uh, gets triggered by hormone androgen, and that powers the tumor to keep on uh, uh, keep on expanding. Okay. And uh, am I right? Is it the, the most common treatment for prostate cancer effectively turns the androgen receptor off? Is that right? So there are what are called sort of first generation anti-hormonal drugs, abiraterone, enzalutamide, and other uh, similar drugs that are coming through that, yes, basically try and su- suppress the androgen receptor. What happens is the tumors mutate as they do to try and get round um, you know, being treated by a certain drug. And that's why you get these variants in the androgen receptor. So what we're doing is going one step back and actually blocking not just the androgen receptor, but all those variants that get produced as well. Brilliant. Just to, to, to sort of give an example, my father died of prostate cancer, but basically in, in most patients, uh, they're given a, a hormone uh, a hormone treatment uh, and it works for a while and that your PSA drops, but then it stops working. And you're trying to find a way of getting around that. Is that correct? That's exactly right. Excellent. I've obviously explained it reasonably well. So, yeah, so it's, it's targeting that late stage population where the drugs are no longer working and actually uh, patients are running out of treatment options. Brilliant. And, and where are you? Uh, um, where are you in the in the in the journey from the idea in your head uh, to a uh, treatment that might that the patients can take? Well, we're in a really exciting phase now because, you know, frankly, we are we are a bunch of scientists that have done science for for many years, looking at many different uh, potential ways forward that might be of use to prostate cancer and other cancers. Um, and actually now we're in those early phase one, phase two clinical trials where we're looking to see if the drug can be effective and be safe. Um, and so, yeah, so beginning to see our first results in patients is, it, it's incredible. I mean, you know, having focused on the science for so long to now have a drug that's being used in, in prostate cancer patients is, is, is fantastic. Well, well, congratulations. And just for our listeners, I think it'd be helpful the 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 journey from lab to 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 chemist if you like is a very very painful one i mean just give us a time scale when when did you first start working on this treatment so this particular treatment we started work probably in about 2013 um up to that point we were essentially looking at uh proteins and other processes that might influence epigenetics and so kind of we were a bit of a knowledge company um, but about sort of six, seven years ago, we said, okay, well, we know so much now, rather than selling this knowledge to other people to then take forward, let's see if we can develop a drug ourselves. So we changed the company quite a lot. We brought in um, new expertise uh, to really sort of kick the tires of, was there something here? Actually, originally, we weren't focused on P300 CBP. We were looking at another way of influencing the antigen receptor pathway. That didn't work, uh, ultimately, um, but the drug we now have is does seem super selective to these two proteins, does seem to inhibit them really exquisitely, and yes, and is now tran- translated into patients. I suppose... So, br- yeah. Sorry. 
in your question. No, 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 don't, don't apologise. So, so that gives a real sense of the time scale. You've been working on it for sort of seven years. And again, just to explain to our listeners, the, the biotech business, who, who's funding you in, in, in that period of time? Yeah, so... Um, this you're, not, really... you're not selling anything yet, are you? <laughs> no. Um, it's a bit like being a sort of an oil prospector, I've been told. But, you know, you, you try and raise a load of money and you dig a hole and you, you wait to see if something rushes out. And uh, more often than not, it doesn't. Um, when we founded the company, we were one of the very early ones to look at epigenetics to see if something you know, clinical and ultimately commercial could be made of it. And, and actually trying to raise any kind of venture capital was extremely hard. Uh, we did actually, in the end, find a very scientifically oriented um, venture capital fund based in Boston with kind of really long-term timescales of, well, look, if the science is that amazing, something will come good at some point. Um, and so Morningside Venture Investments have been incredibly supportive of us. Um, that said, we've also had a number of uh, uh, UK grants. Um, so Innovate UK run something called uh, Biomedical Catalyst, which has really, really helped the biotech community over the last 10 years. And uh, we've received a number of uh, additional awards from there as well. But actually, as you get into the clinic and people can see that if you've got something that um, looks really tractable from a sort of clinical point of view, then actually venture capital becomes more easy to raise. And actually, at the moment, uh, venture capital for biotech and healthcare is, um, yeah, it's it's abundant um yeah dry powder i think is the phrase yeah and i I think it's in a in a way i think the pandemic um has kind of helped with that because it's really sort of shown that actually cutting edge r&d can produce results quite quickly and actually this is an area that needs investing and and it actually it's created a lot of enthusiasm but also understanding for the sector in general so, and when you say UK grants, is that effectively taxpayer money? Yes, yes, it's taxpayer money. Yeah. Okay. And do you, do foundations support you at all, or or charities even at that stage? Um, they can do. Uh, we did receive a collaborative uh, grant from uh, the Prostate Cancer Foundation in the US, um, and that we worked with a number of our collaborators over there with. Um, it's a little less relevant for us, but. Quite a lot of other biotech companies do get charitable support, particularly from organisations like Cancer Research UK. I know that the antimicrobial uh, companies have been hugely helpful, and including the dementia ones as well. So, yeah, I mean, they, the charitable sector definitely plays into the mix of supporting yeah, early stage speculative research, yeah. That, that's a hugely helpful explanation because one of the challenges for our charity is uh, is to explain exactly what we do and where the money's going and why it's needed and why the government can't just do it all or the NHS. There is this sort of, uh, you need a, spe- a spectrum of financial support to get these uh, ideas to the patient. Uh, so you, let's talk about phase one and phase two. Uh, those are the early trials. Uh, how many more trials uh, do, you, do, you, do you have to go through before you can get approval for the drug? Yeah, so normally you go through phase one, which is typically your um, uh, safety tolerability. Phase two is looking for initial efficacy. Can you find markers of efficacy that then you can do the larger scale studies, phase three, to prove that your drug can really work at a certain dose with a certain dosing regime? Um, 
in cancer studies, actually, it's a bit more blurred because uh, you don't do your traditional, um, uh, you know, your test product versus a control and take it forward like that. It's not appropriate for, you know, later stage um, uh, patients that, that have few alternatives. So the phase one, phase two becomes a bit blurred. Um, so if you look at the top of our protocol, we're actually a sort of a phase one slash phase two A um, so it's slightly different from, say, you know, the vaccine studies that most people are reading about at the moment. And then, phase, what sort of timescale? Are there phase three and phase four still to come? So phase three is still to come. Uh, whether or not you have to do a phase four, phase four is um, not always used. That's if you're looking for a particular signal that you might have seen, but you really want to test if it's real or not real. Um, so phase three data is not, can be enough to sort of push you through to a market authorization and then, then use, yes. And then and then something I've read about, um, even if you pass all the uh, the tests, if you like, and you get approval, that then there's the issue of whether the um, NICE will fund, will fund the drug. Is, is that correct? That's a further hurdle. That's exactly right. And in the States, you've got the, you know, the healthcare um, organizations as well that, that compensate uh, the insurance companies that, that use the drugs. So, I mean, uh, from our point of view, we've really focused on a drug that is first of its kind. So it's, you know, in biotech parlance, it's uh, first in class. And we're really looking for something that's going to actually create a significant new benefit and not just be marginally additive, if you see what I mean. And so hopefully it's sort of the economic balance of, well, how much extra effectiveness do you get for the price of a new drug? Hopefully that's less of an issue for something like we're doing, which is, you know, a genuine new way of looking at treating cancer. Brilliant. And um, without getting over it, so tell, me, tell me about the impact or, the, or the, the results the drug seems to be showing so far. We haven't formally published those yet, so I've got to be a bit okay. careful. We have had, yeah. uh, in fact, just last week, our first uh, publication officially uh, accepted by a journal. So that some of that early data is going to uh, be published very soon. Um, we've still got a way to go, but the work that we saw in the lab and experiments we did before we started our clinical studies, we are seeing translation of that into patients. So some of the key markers that you'd be looking for, we are seeing significant influence on we still haven't completely bottomed out precisely the right dose and dosing schedule to maximize uh, effect while seeing tolerability so you know there, there's still work to do but there are certainly encouraging signs uh, and how i mean look i i know you you'll say all the time early days early days early days how far away are you from uh it possibly being available to patients so and switching to expansion studies should happen, um, you know, coming up to the summer next year. They will probably run for, what, 18 months, two and a half years, say. So, yeah, around that sort of time scale, sort of three, three to four years. Brilliant. Well, that, that's congratulations. That's really exciting and good luck. And now tell me, I mean, what, how I got in touch with you through the, the charity Prostate Cancer Research. How, how, are you, how are you working with them? So this came from a number of different discussions, really, within the team. Um, you know, 
most of us are quite sort of uh, spotty science types and we always look at things mechanistically well you know what's going on within the cell what's this protein doing why is that triggering this and and actually the thing that was missing was well what we're doing is generating a product patience <laughs> so we haven't got the patient's voice in any of this and we're not being influenced by frankly what they want we're just being influenced by what the science can deliver so really this was kind of like instead of just science push we need a bit of patient pull particularly now we're in uh, clinical trials so we reached out to um, the charity really to say can you help us try and listen more to what patients want so that we can actually take that on board as we're developing our drug during its clinical stages. And, and doesn't, I mean, sorry, explain to me, do, do, don't patients just want th- to get better? Well, that's that's really interesting because, yes, of course, but actually they don't want to just get better at any cost. They don't want to get better if they have to sit in a, a, a hospital for eight hours a day have, being infused by something. So, Actually, the way a drug is uh, delivered is incredibly important to patients. And, you know, I think some scientists forget that. So, you know, the fact that we've honed in on a a capsule that can be taken once a day at home is a huge advantage. The other thing they want to feel is well and happy. This is actual data from prostate cancer research where they've done a number of surveys now where they're saying that actually it's that feeling good about yourself is really important. So, if you've got a drug that just makes you feel really down, but actually your PSA levels are plummeting, well, you know, you need both. You need uh, a drug that doesn't overly influence how you feel, but also still treats the tumour. And so, again, it's just for us as a biotech company, it's just raising awareness of what other things should we be monitoring, what should we be thinking about, not just in terms of dose and dosing regime, but actually the patient experience, how they're feeling, you know, trying to bring that all together to create something that's going to be, you know, make a difference for patients. It, it, it sounds, I would say this, but it sounds like a, a really innovative partnership between a charity and a biotech company. It's been really odd because, frankly, we reached out to a number of charities that deal with patients. They were like, we've never been approached by a biotech company before. What, what do you want? And actually, it took quite a lot of sort of, dancing around before we were like no no but we want this but the charity was like what so you just want to promote your drug and it's like no no we want to know the patient experience so that that can help us and and actually uh, the guys at prostate cancer research kind of got it really quickly and uh, it's been really positive experience we had a, a review meeting yesterday of some uh, more data that they've brought in from uh, some patient surveys that they've done and uh, and actually it was, it, it's great it's, it's a great partnership that's fantastic and uh you know i'm a, I'm a trustee but the, they are uh a brilliant the people who, who work on the charity are, are absolutely outstanding in, in my opinion um do, do you think um, i mean it's, it's a caricature but do you still think too, too much of the biotech industry is is focused on the lab and the and the results and, and not on the or not on the patients i think a number of different things are happening now um I think the boundaries between sort of, you know, your, your lab scientists and society at large are beginning to blur. And and I think that's a really good thing. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that might be a caricature from, you know, historic times. But I think there is more awareness of what we do, why we're doing it, um, that I think should only grow. 
And finally, I mean, you mentioned the pandemic once, no conversation, can't mention it. Has um, has COVID set back your work? Uh, yes. Um, obviously, there have been restrictions in how we work. Uh, we're a pretty flexible, relatively small company. So actually, we managed to get a lot of those working practices uh, up and running quite quickly. But actually, for three and a half months, no hospitals were recruiting patients onto clinical trials in the UK, certainly in the you know, the, the multiple hospitals that we work with. And, of course, you know, if you can't recruit patients onto studies, you, you can't keep your, stu- your studies going as normal. Um, having said that, uh, a number of patients did continue on uh, our drug during, the, uh, during the, the highest lockdown, which was fantastic. And, and actually, hospitals, again, have adapted quite quickly of trying to get processes that work for patients, work for clinicians that are sort of pandemic appropriate. So, yes, it has delayed us uh, probably six months in total, I suspect. But things now are not quite where they were before the pandemic, but but certainly getting up there. Uh, and, and it's a final question. Is it possible to quantify? But I mean, you sort of alluded to it earlier. Do you, do you think, um, in a way, the pandemic's been very good for science? It's really uh, um, thrust it to the, the forefront of society. The, the pandemic has been bad news. I mean, you know, it's had a significant effect on, on you know, sort of the health of populations and, you know, and it's had a real impact on so many families. But the one thing that has come out of it is a much greater understanding of the role that basic research can play, um, the understanding of clinical trials. I mean, you know, it's fantastic that, you know, you can talk to your parents about the nuances of clinical trial design. I mean, you know, who, who knew that would ever happen? Um, so, yeah, I... I, I yeah, is it? It's not obviously been a good thing, but there are aspects to it that I think have brought society at large closer with what research can deliver for the benefits of all. That was the CEO of Cell Centric, Will West, talking to me, Ben Munro Davis. You can find the Prostate Pod, brought to you by Prostate Cancer Research, on iTunes, Spotify, and all the main podcast providers. And Prostate Cancer Research has a fantastic new website. Have a look to find out more about us. The music is Sweet Vermouth by Kevin MacLeod. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 